podcast of the Utah Shakespeare Festival. I'm Emily Reed. And I'm Cheyenne Gray. For our next episode, we want to hear from you about one of the most beloved musicals of all time, especially here in Utah, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. The festival has produced this musical once before in 1998, and we're so happy to bring it back this season. We'll be featuring the show in an upcoming episode, so we want to hear from you about your Joseph story. When did you first encounter this show? Did you want to play the narrator growing up? Did you see the festival's 1998 production, which featured the now-famous actor Matt Bomer, by the way? Little claim to fame there. Let us know by emailing us at podcast at bard.org or leaving us a voicemail at 385-422-1898. I'm super excited to introduce our guests. We spoke to Melinda Funstein, director of the Book of Will here at the festival, and Lauren Gunderson, the actual real-life playwright of the Book of Will. Lauren is currently the most produced living playwright in America, with plays like Silent Sky, Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley, and of course, The Book of Will, now staples of theaters across the country. We spoke to her via Skype with Melinda here in the studio with us. Melinda and Lauren, thank you so much for being here with us. Hi, um, I'm Cheyenne. I'm Emily. And of course, this is Melinda. Hi, Lauren. It's great to see you. Like we've kind of talked about in our email, our thought with this conversation is that we really want it to be just that, to be um, mostly a conversation between the two of you that um, Emily and I have some questions that we can put out there to kind of guide things, but mostly we just want it to be a a conversation between a playwright and a director, which we think is, is really cool. So I will start by just briefly introducing both of you for the podcast listeners, and then we will get into it. So we're so excited about our guest today. Joining us in the studio, we have Melinda Funstein, a longtime Utah Shakespeare Festival actor and director of The Merchant of Venice in our 2018 season and director of The Book of Will in our upcoming season. Joining us over Skype, we have Lauren Gunderson, who is the playwright of The Book of Will. Thank you both so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. So to kind of start us off on a, a general note, I would love to hear from both of you, what does the Book of Will mean to you? We can kind of get into that however we want. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> right in this moment. Just <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to start. I mean, I wrote the play because I'm fascinated with the power and longevity of words and fiction. And Shakespeare is one of the most incredible, um, both in the longevity and the breadth of iconic stories, the invention of language. Um, And, you know, for me, how that has lasted hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, And so something about the magic of that, and of course, all of our allegiance (laughs) to Shakespeare, um, felt like if, if there was an untold story in all of his stories, uh, that's would be worth writing. Um, and of course, being obviously a playwright myself, I'm I'm fascinated by how other people manage it. <laughs> and, and so this this was a chance to kind of get get close to one of my literary heroes. Uh, and and also um, a chance to see the people behind the person. You know, this is really a play less about Shakespeare and then more about his friends and the people who do the things. Um, in the shadows uh, that create things that we all um, 
uh, adore, and that changed the world. Uh, wonderful. And I'm looking at it uh, through the lens of doing it here at USF uh, with this particular group of actors and this audience and uh, this theater and uh, with its history. And it's uh, such a beautiful uh, love story or love letter to any audience, I think, who loves Shakespeare but loves language. And um, it, it's particularly interesting, I think, for for our audiences because um, it is, it, it's a similar story to the trajectory of, of this theater, you know, one in which there was a lot of um, planning and a lot of artistry and a lot of, uh, there's a lot of reverence around what has been, um, what has persevered and what is today. But at the same time, uh, it, it really was uh, people in their living rooms and in the privates of their homes and the privates of their, of their friend, uh, you know, their friendships, making things happen um, for and with each other that that made what we have today. And I think that is true of uh, Shakespeare's time and, and why and how his, uh, his legacy remains intact today as we know it. And, uh, and so it's exciting to have that kind of reverence for a body of work or like for, for this festival, for this, for this organization and this uh, place that the play is being done in, uh, but then also to, um, to dig into the uh, familial and friend relationships of, of, the, of the personal within it. So kind of a, a two-part question that I hope you'll both be able to weigh in on. Um, this play is, of course, based on true events and real people. I'm curious, Lauren, can you tell us a bit about the research that went into writing this play and how you kind of take what is real and make it into a, a dramatized version? Um, and then Melinda, it, it being based on true events and things that are, of course, very important to us here at Utah Shakespeare Festival, where so much of what we do revolves around Shakespeare, um, how does that inform your directing process, knowing that these were real people, but also treating it as, as any other play or story that you're going to tell? Yeah, I the stories um, about the storytellers <laughs> um, are both very distinct to a time and a place and also really uh, universal. Um, and so I was drawing from a lot of how I think about storytelling and the people, the dramaturgs I work with, the actors I work with, the directors I work with, um, and how the natural community of theater making uh, works and putting it in Shakespeare's time. So all of his friends are actors and managers and what would be called directors now, but weren't called directors then. Um, and so those relationships to me feel a bit unchanged through time. Um, but the, 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 the true history of Shakespeare, as we know, is frankly mostly unknown. Um, to be so well regarded <laughs> and to have his words um, soar through time, we don't know that much about him. As many books as have been written, <laughs> there's really not much that we know. So uh, what I found in, in a lot of the research and some early dramaturgs and uh, helped me with is seeing the kind of major players who was alive, who wasn't, um, what the process of printing actually was, which when you say this is a play about printing, it sounds like the most boring thing in the world. But back then, <laughs> printing was high stakes, um, high money, 
there was high tension. It was um, still a new uh, field to publish plays that might last at all. Most plays were printed on what we would think of as newspaper or magazine print now, something to kind of be enjoyed once and thrown away. Um, and so all of the, the very feat of printing all of his plays in one large folio volume was unheard of. It's just bizarre. So now it's so, it's so normalized. Of course, of course you read Shakespeare's plays in folio, of course. But back then it was a crazy, crazy endeavor, which to me was one of the signifiers that it could be a good play. It's, there's a large mountain to climb. There's a, a, big, a big ask, bit, lots of risk for the people involved. Um, it took all of them. One person could do it all together. So all of that meant that um, what we did know about Shakespeare was that he didn't publish his plays in his own time. Um, John Hemmings and Henry Condell did. Uh, it is uh, the printers were the Jaggard family. Um, and, you know, uh, besides that, there was a, a kind of a, a cohort of people who were, who were sponsoring the printing eventually. <laughs> um, they, of course, didn't have the plays, um, all of them, in, um, in a row. Oftentimes they had only part by part. So you'd have Hamlet, but maybe not Horatio <laughs> in the same collection. Um, and all of this just feels kind of a bit funny now because they're so treasured, right? There's it's, it's, it's this golden, golden literature and that it was so close to not being preserved, so close, easily could have just vanished. Um, as a lot of Shakespeare's plays had at the time of his printing, we only had about half of them in circulation and they weren't the ones approved by the King's Men. Uh, and so it was this kind of amazing um, feat that they managed uh, to do. And, you know, the goal of the play is even though you kind of know the ending, you don't really know the ending. So we know that the plays get published, shocker. <laughs> but, um, but the journey <laughs> and the lives that were changed and went into it um, is really the journey, the journey you're following. Yeah, I love that. Uh, it's the, the delicate uh, sort of dance between the art and the business is so alive in this production as it is today. I mean, it, it's always this, you know, dance, maybe more, I don't know if it's more of a struggle or a dance, but uh, I think that's the exciting stuff for me from a directing standpoint, uh, is that the, all of the reverence and all of the revere around this stuff, and it really was a bunch of artists and business people throwing crap on the wall <laughs> and to see what would stick, you know? And the delicate, it was just such a delicate thing. It, all, you know, the fire that took out all of these, uh, all of these papers, you know, that it could have just been, you know, that somebody got lazy and that this didn't get done or that, that uh, you know, that, um, that somebody else did get away with with printing it under on their own terms with their own their own format of the script that they you know I mean it, it, it's just all it was all so so delicate and um, I'm really excited about that from a playing standpoint um, in a directing standpoint that um, that we have to look at what is actionable and what is um, uh, what actually plays between the human beings on the stage. So um, Lauren has written some beautiful uh, relationships uh, that really ground the piece in, um, in 
in um, information that is really accessible. Uh, just from a human standpoint, um, we know what it is to be like, even though, even though we don't know what, what it was to be in Shakespeare's time, or to be living in that time, we know what it is to be familial with, um, you know, with, with a husband or a wife or a partner or a, or a sibling or a mother or daughter. And um, so those, those are the places where I look for, um, for keys and clues into what is playable um, uh, within, within the script. So we mentioned this a little bit um, in that you said we all know how it ends. So that makes me wonder, um, the play does have two endings. Do we know yet which ending we're using? We do. Is that a big secret in other productions, Lauren? I mean, basically there's a big ending and a kind of small intimate ending. And I always root for the big ending because I have no idea what it's going to look like. (laughs) Yeah, well, well, we're going big. I mean, go big or go home, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, I I don't really see, I I appreciate that there are options in there, but uh, it's it's really, it's really uh, spectacular. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. And uh, the scene designer, by the way, um, the set designer, Apollo Weaver, has some really cool uh, surprises in store. Um, I, I don't know how much of this we can talk about. Now, I guess we can talk. We can talk about There's it. There's no one else in the room telling us not to. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, his design is uh, pulling elements from the Adams Theater. So, uh, and Lauren, the Adams Theater is the original outdoor theater that uh, we started with here at U- Utah Shakes. And so the, um, the Ingolstadt is, um, feels similar, but um, is made of different materials. So Apollo pulled his, um, his design from the Adams. So it's reminiscent of that feel. And then uh, as this script does so beautifully in terms of pulling on Shakespeare's time and then uh, a contemporary feel, uh, at times as well, um, then we'll be using some technical elements that are absolutely you couldn't do except for in, in 2019. Yeah. So it'll be exciting. That is really exciting. I, I, I love that idea too because that will make it so personal for a lot of people who have such an intimate personal history with the Adams Theater. I hope so. Um, I think that'll be really special. So another question for both of you, um, and it, it, it can involve the events of the Book of Will or not, um, but we're wondering, do you have a favorite story or legend about William Shakespeare? Um, of course, there is so much that we don't know, so that gives rise to so many legends, um, some of them more plausible than others. But yeah, I'm just wondering if you, if you have a, a favorite story or legend about the Bard. I mean, my, my favorite is about um, Anne, his wife. Um, and partly because it, I was absorbing a lot of the history and um, the academic work around her. Again, not much written about her either, you know, half as much um, as about Shakespeare. Um, but it, it took a couple of feminist scholars to help me see that so much of that research gave zero credit um, or room for Anne to be a full person. And if we adore Shakespeare so much, we should assume that he would marry somebody that wasn't a wench and a, and a nag and trying to make him stop being a writer, which when you think about um, Anne Hathaway Shakespeare, that's the story you get. She was older than him. She had two these kids and she didn't live in London and he had to break free from her to be his true self. We know, no, we know none of that as a fact. 
The fact that she's illiterate, no, we don't know that as a fact at all. In fact, she was a very successful business person and kind of ran things and bought you know, fancy property in Stratford while Shakespeare was off in London writing. There's no reason to think that she didn't go to, to London and see some of his plays. Literally, we have no clue, but we are you know, just fl flooded with stories of that are misogynistic and sexist about the love of this amazing man. So I would assume if the man's amazing, she might be pretty amazing too, which is part of why one of the, the scenes involves her and uh, the daughters. So I, I love that story. I find it so mysterious, their relationship, and choose to believe that some or part of it was full of love and appreciation and, you know, every marriage is rocky at a certain time, so I'm sure theirs was as well, but he came back to her at the end of his life and came back home to Stratford. So there's some beautiful, you know, uh, story there that I, I'm, I've always wanted to write, write that story. So maybe that's the next one, Book of Will Part Two. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love, uh, Lauren, what you did with the women in this. Amelia is another one who in history has been diminished to, you know, possibly one of the dark ladies uh, in, in Shakespeare's sonnets. But uh, it's rarely mentioned that she was a brilliant poet and writer and scholar in her own right. And, uh, and so, uh, or, you know, that... Uh, we see a little bit of what uh, Rebecca Hemings might have been like. Uh, you know, we know that she had like 14 kids. She had a, a just a truckload of. I mean, they had so and was a working. I mean, she she worked and was. I mean, th these are incredible and kept things together. In this play, anyway, we see uh, how she is absolutely picking up all the pieces when. Uh, when Hemings comes home uh, and is a wreck, which I, I think is beautiful to see um, the untold story uh, as for a, I don't, I don't have a favorite story of my own. I, the only thing I can think about is the story that Fred always tells at the first meeting of how the pioneers came across the plains and, <laughs> and did Merchant of Venice here. That's the, but that has nothing to do with Shakespeare. It just has to do with the early Utahns or early settlers here. Uh, using Shakespeare's works. And you, you know, one other thing is in terms of the, the female characters in a play, which frankly, this play set, you know, in, in 1619 in London, England, you could imagine it as very white and very male. Um, and I specifically wanted to encourage a diversity, conscious diversity in casting because Shakespeare's for everybody and it should look like that. And also very consciously, um, creating roles for women, much like Shakespeare did. Shakespeare wrote incredible roles for women. Um, the most lines in any play is, is Rosalind. Um, uh, and, you know, there's, there, anyway, so there's this incredible um, legacy that I wanted to, is both quite interesting to me in my other work, um, and making sure to carve out and um, expose the stories of women across time and in all disciplines, but especially in this world of stories of great love and great triumph and great community and great language. Um, and Shakespeare knew how to do that with, with his work. Um, you know, Beatrice is my favorite ca character in, in all of Shakespeare. And, uh, you know, even Ophelia and Gertrude, they got some stuff to do, you know. Um, there, there's a lot of Lady M is just delicious. What a crazy role. It's just awesome. So there's so much stuff that um, I think in kind of mimicking what Shakespeare does with his women, um, I wanted to fill the play with boisterous, 
agency-filled women um, that are funny and sexy and, you know, odd and funny uh, and smart, um, all that kind of stuff. So it's it, it was a real, was the greatest pleasure of writing this play was writing those uh, those women. Lauren, I think yours is the first play written by a woman on the outdoor stage in the history oh, of the festival. That. Yeah, so first awesome. of many, I hope. I hope we're... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I hope we're uh, setting a new <laughs> setting a new path. Absolutely. And it's also, you know, when you write strong women, it's often in contrast to the male characters. And what I, I, I find myself writing plays over and over again that are less about arguments and that kind of conflict between people where a woman is nagging and stopping her husband from doing what she wants. And you know, all of these tropes that we have of women that are getting in the way. And this is a, a story about a, a community coming together, this cohort, this congregation of people working together. And the men respect their wives and they love their wives. And they're like, oh man, thank you. I couldn't have done this without you. And isn't that darn refreshing? So um, I, I, I really love that, that part of what this play does. You know, it's not necessarily about that, but it is braided into the storytelling is this sense of like, yeah, look what happens when we work together and we like each other. Look at that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I can't help but think of, um, you know, the founder of this festival, Fred Adams, his, uh, his uh, wife, Barbara Adams, uh, passed away, oh, it must have been 10 years ago, but she had, she is, it, it was her in, I mean, you hear Fred talking about how this place was built and the legacy of this place was built on, uh, in Barbara's, you know, through Barbara's imagination and Barbara's, um, her uh, go, I mean, it was, it was her grit and her uh, know-how and uh, to see how that team built this legacy. And so often uh, we hear Fred lifted up in that, in that narrative, but uh, this, that, it reminds me hearing you talk about uh, the legacy of Barbara here mm. and, uh, and just how, how powerful that kind of partnership uh, can be. And it's, it, it's great to, to see that uh, brought out in, in these characters as well. I also I was really excited about the inclusion of um, Amelia Bassano in the play. A long time ago, I wrote a thesis on on her work, and so I thought it was really interesting that Ben Johnson was also a character, um, because a lot of people credit Ben Johnson. I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, so I have to say <laughs> a lot of people credit Ben Johnson with writing the first ever um, country house poem, which is a genre in and of itself. Um, but actually, Amelia. Bassano Lanier published a country house poem before Ben Johnson did. And there's a lot of evidence that her work influenced both Ben Johnson and Shakespeare. There's like small things that she published before his plays were, were written that he took like metaphors, strong metaphors that he took directly from her pages. So that was, I thought that was really cool, and I geeked out really much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, Amelia's so great. I read uh, Tina Packer's book, Women of Will, which is just... Oh, it's my Bible. I love it so much. She's such a genius. And she breaks down very thoughtfully kind of why Shakespeare's women um, change. Uh, and, you know, they, they uh, from the early plays, you know, you switch from kind of nuns and ingenues to really complex, funny, sexy, strong women and Beatrice and Lady M and on and on and on. Um, and, you know, why is that what happened? Well, he grew up. He met 
cool women who like learned to be a human being that wasn't just like, are you my mom or are we having sex? Those are the only two options. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, women are so diverse and challenging. And I like to think that someone, either Amelia herself or someone like her, took him to task and was like, dude, you gotta, you gotta work on your women, bro. <laughs> he was like, noted, duly noted. Okay, let me, let me work on that. <laughs> so do you, either one of you, do you have a favorite character or part of the play that you're just, it, it's, it's kind of just like beautiful and reverent <laughs> and sacred to you? <laughs> Uh, I mean, for me, it's the top of Act Two, which I won't speak about too much. Oh, that's mine too. <laughs> I think that's the reason the whole play is written. And without giving anything away, it talks about the reason we do what we do in the theater and the reason not only that the artists who create the work do it, but the reason why everyone sitting in the audience goes and comes back and is welcome and is necessary for the storytelling to happen. So in some way, it's kind of my my love story to the love of my life of theater. Yeah, agreed. That is it, without question my favorite section of the play as well. And uh, is so, um, well, the construction of uh, not set against the every, everything else that you've done, Lauren, um, in, in terms of how the ensemble is used, we'll be using a 10 person cast. Um, and uh, the way the players are used throughout, and uh, and then the way that it, it, you just um, it just focuses in on this, uh, both in size and scale, uh, in in terms of what's happening on the stage. It will all have a very um, sort of crystallized feel compared to everything that has come before and uh, and everything that comes after. And uh, so I, I really look forward to to chewing on that bit of it when we get into the rehearsal <laughs> yeah, room. Absolutely. Going back a little bit, um, just I, I, I love that this conversation kind of took a, a turn toward all of the amazing women characters in this play and how, how much that mirrors real life. Um, so Melinda, can you talk a little bit about how, it, how this relates to your, in your professional life, your work with Statera and um, and what, what that means to you to have, have this in a play, to have um, a, a season at the Utah Shakespeare Festival where over half of our directors this year are women um, and the kind of the strides that we're making toward um, equity in that way. Absolutely. Um, the tides are uh, changing and um, in the best way possible. Um, uh, you're speaking of an organization that I'm co-founder of um, called Statera Arts. And uh, it's an organization that uh, the mission is to bring women into full and equal participation in the arts, um, meaning making sure that there's space at the table for all and that we are telling stories by and for more people. And um, this is a Shakespeare festival. And as Lauren said, we, we uh, tend to do work by and for uh, middle-aged white men, which is a which is a great story. Those are great stories, right? But I, we want to know what the other stories are as well. And when we talk about the stories that are lost, we're talking about half of the narrative that is missing uh, when we're only getting that narrative. So uh, it is exciting to me to see um, to see casting that is happening through a lens that includes more more 
audience members, more diverse perspectives. Uh, it's exciting that uh, conversations about what types of plays and what types of stories and narratives are being are being shared are um, are from more diverse perspectives and. Um, it's it's the way that the arts and the world are moving. And uh, if Utah shakes and every theater and arts organization across the country wants to stay relevant and stay in business, I truly believe that it's important that we continue to have those conversations and get it more and more right as we move. And I, I think Utah is making major strides in that, in that direction. Awesome. Um, well, it looks like we are um, just about at time for for today, um, but I just wanted to put it out there if there's anything else that you feel that we um, haven't touched on or that or that we wanted to say in our last few minutes here from from anybody. <laughs> I'm so ready. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, really excited. It's it's exciting to be in the room and virtually in the room with you, Lauren, and uh, I'm excited to get into the rehearsal hall. Yeah, me too. I can't wait. This is gonna be this is gonna be great. I'm um I'm so honored to be on this hallowed stage, and uh yeah, I mean this is this is truly a play about congregation and community, and I think this is certainly a time for that story, um to be told loud and strong about what we do when we come together and um, the value of doing something bigger than yourself and sacrificing things for something greater and uh yeah and it's 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 a um it's a play that that has a special magic to it so i'm i'm excited to let loose the magic in utah <laughs> we hope to do you proud lauren <laughs> no doubt no doubt well thank you again so much for being here with us today it was wonderful to talk to you and to have this conversation so thank you so much thank you thank you thank you so much to another episode of the Play On Podcast. Let us know about your memories of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and you could be featured on our next episode. Our email is podcast at bard.org, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 385-422-1898. This podcast is a co-production of the Marketing and Education Departments of the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Thanks to Michael Barr and Tyler Morgan for all their help. Our music is by Caitlin Limber. You can find more episodes of this show on our website, bard.org slash podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.